You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. For the past 30 years or more, journalists have used the phrase silent majority to refer to conservative Christian voters likely to vote on election day, yet perhaps overlooked in reporting and polling. Instrumental in the victories of Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, the silent majority has become more vocal in the Bush and Trump years. Perhaps surprisingly, few have examined why the silent majority fell silent in the first place and what such censorship might mean for America today. Joining us today to help look at these questions is Paul Matsko, author of The Radio Right, Creating the Silent Majority, out in April 2020 from Oxford University Press. Dr. Paul Matsko is a historian specializing in the intersection of politics and religion in 20th century America. His work draws from media sources, public choice economics, gender studies, and social movement theory. He is currently the assistant editor for tech and innovation at libertarianism.org and outreach of the Cato Institute, for which he also runs a regular column and hosts a podcast on emerging technology called Building Tomorrow. Christian Humanist Profiles is pleased to have Dr. Matsko with us today. Paul, how's it going? Great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's uh, great to have you as well. Uh, Paul and I have a personal history. He and I were an undergraduate together, and though our career paths have gone in vastly different directions, he's always encouraged me, and now it's my turn to reciprocate that as he's here on our show to talk about his, his upcoming book. Again, that is called The Radio Right, Creating the Silent Majority. Uh, it's described as a political history of religious broadcasting, a social history of grassroots conservatism, a media history of, tw- of mid-20th century radio, and a prehistory of the Reagan Revolution. Uh, that seems like quite a broad, a broad <laughs> swath of subjects. Yeah, I tried to cover uh, a little more ground than I think I expected when I started this project. Um, but it, it, and it really all began with... Um, I, I had read some articles and books about uh, the rise of conservatism in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, uh, historians like Lisa McGurr, who wrote a book called Suburban Warriors, and I read that. It's about conservatives in Southern California. And as she's listing these different conservative figures and telling their stories, I realized that a big chunk of them were part of the American Council of Christian Churches which was this small fundamentalist organization started by uh, a New Jersey fundamentalist preacher called Carl McIntyre back in the 1940s. And I said, huh, that's really strange. And so Carl McIntyre's archives, I was at uh, Temple University in Philadelphia at the time. His archives were in Princeton, right across the river in New Jersey. Um, and the, that it evolved, um, evolved from there. So it kind of started as a work of of political religious history, and then it became a history of media when I realized how important broadcasting was to the story. And uh, here we are, the better part of a decade later. Well, um, you know, I t- you talked about how you came to the project. Do you have any, any theories or any ideas about, about why there aren't any scholarly accounts that have been done about, uh, about the uh, silent majority, at least in, in their origin? Yeah, that's actually a really, that's a great question. Um, so uh, part of this is that the, the concept of, of, of the silent majority, and I should note that um, you saw one of the pre-review copies and that since then the subtitle has changed to, same, same main title, uh, the radio right, uh, how a band of broadcasters took on the federal government and created modern conservatism. Great. Um, so it's changed a little bit, but the, the, that, the idea is still there. So the um, I, I think this is in part because silent majority is a it's a poli- it's a political catchphrase coined by the uh, Nixon campaign um, during uh, the '68 campaign, as I recall, um, and his political you know his pl- campaign advisors came up with it. So it's essentially like saying it'd be like if in you know 50 years from now we were talking about how uh, uh, you know making America great again and the movement that made America great again. It'd be like well. I mean, to us now, that sounds strange because it was like, well, that's a slogan, and then there are people who identify with that slogan. But the idea of it as being a real thing is somewhat complicated. But uh, so, so Nixon uses the silent majority as a way of, of you know, justifying why he ought to win in 1968. 
uh, and he wins. I mean, you can argue there was a silent majority. There was a majority because he won <laughs> in 68. But there is something to it beyond just the, the idea of it as a political catchphrase. And it's that um, this is the moment. Uh, and Nixon wasn't really tapping into this himself very effectively. But it is the moment when we see the rise of, of fusionist conservatism is the technical term. Today we just say conservative. But it's this combination of um, Cold War hawkishness or internationalism, the idea the U.S. should fight the, the Soviet Union and communism, global communism, uh, wherever it's found abroad, with uh, Catholic and, to a lesser extent, uh, evangelical uh, social conservatism, along with a dose of economic laissez-faire. Uh, so it's those three things come together in the 1950s and early 60s to form what we call fusionist conservatism, and it starts to make its ascent in the Republican Party in, as an internal faction in the Republican Party during the 1960s. It doesn't kind of win over the Republican Party until the, the you know Ronald Reagan kind of secures it in 1980. Um, and the, you know, the Reagan revolution is this kind of full flowering of the fusionist conservative ideal. But this, Nixon, in a sense, is referring to these, this, this group of people, of voters, who are not being adequately served by either um, uh, great society-style uh, Democrat, Democratic Party or relatively moderate Eisenhower-era republicanism. And these people aren't happy with their current political choices and they're looking for another option. Um, there, so there is something to that creating, creating a silent majority idea. Um, as far as why it doesn't get studied, um, or at least why my particular take on this doesn't get studied, I think it's because it cuts across all too many, too many categories. So if you're a political historian, uh, you don't typically spend all that much time thinking about broadcasting you know, uh, communications technology. There's a whole field for that. There's communications scholars and media studies scholars. Um, but media studies scholars don't usually have the grounding to tell the, kind, the political history. So the, those two fields don't intersect as much as they, they ought to. But then also there's the religious history angle. M most of these major broadcasters I talk about are preachers. Uh, Billy James Hargis mm -hmm. uh, of the Christian Church, uh, Carl McIntyre with you know Pres Bible Presbyterian, Clarence Mannion is a Catholic layman. Um, you can go down the list. There's a heavy dose of religion in this, and usually, again, political historians aren't interested in religious history. Religious historians aren't always comfortable dealing with like overt political history, formal political history. So I think that's why my particular topic kind of fell through the cracks. Well, thank you for clarifying that. One of the other terms that shows up throughout the book is the term mainline church. And again, I've, mm. I've seen that used in, um, used in print and in journalism for years, but I always equated it with something more akin to like a, uh, your normal standard, you know, average Christian. But that might mm. not be the case. What exactly is ma a mainline church? Yeah, so the mainline, uh, the Protestant mainline, um, are... Uh, Protestant churches, um, it, it, it was so, maybe I should put it this way. The main line, that term, is invented um, in its religious application right around 1960. And I'll talk about that in a sec. But the, uh, the main line is a term that we use to refer to essentially a group of churches that um, the clergy of which tends to be relatively theologically and even politically liberal. And this is coming out of the early 20th century, the fundamentalist modernist debates mm -hmm. over whether the, you know, the Bible is uh, literally, literally true, whether you know, the uh, substitutionary atonement battles, uh, all, all the different orthodoxy battles of the early 20th century, um, the modernists win. So the modernists or ec ecumenical liberals, um, they end up by the end of the 1920s really controlling all, most of the major seminaries, they kick the fundamentalists out of most of the major denominations um, across the kind of denominational spectrum from Methodists to uh, Episcopalians to you know, uh, certain Baptist denominations. The fundamentalists get kicked out. They go form their own uh, much smaller, less uh, uh, reputable institutions that have to build up you know, uh, respectability over time. But at the time, they're smaller um, 
struggling for cash without a lot of kind of institutional respectability. Uh, and the mainline denominations now that they've essentially purged the fundamentalists, or, um, uh, it's a, so it's a way of saying there's a set of denominations that are older, have been around for a lot longer, have a lot of cultural and religious uh, re respect and pedigree, uh, lots of influence. So, I mean, multiple members of these denominations, you know, s most presidents attended mainline churches, members of Congress attended mainline churches. So they have a lot of kind of cultural authority. Um, and then, but there wasn't a really great term for that because if you said, uh, you know, Protestant liberalism, well, not everyone in these churches was a liberal. Okay. Uh, you actually had, you know, people both in the pews and the clergy who were still like, would identify, we would kind of identify them as evangelical. So it was, there was never a great term for the churches. Uh, and then in around about 1960, um, the epicenter of this, uh, of kind of Protestant liberalism in the early to mid 20th century was actually Philadelphia. So you have a number of uh, major uh, seminaries around Philly, including Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, Villanova. It, there's there's a there's a half a dozen uh, right around the Philadelphia area. Area Philadelphia at the time is still a leading city in America. I mean, it hasn't been for half a century now, but back then it was still on the tail end. Don't, don't tell anyone in Philly this. <laughs> but, but <laughs> I back promise. Then it was still yeah, it was still up there with you know New York and um, Chicago and Washington, etc. And uh, it, in Philly, the main uh, wealthy suburbs in western Philly had a railroad that ran through them called the Main Line. It was a very old passenger railway. Um, the remnants of it are still there today. Uh, you can, they're now commuter rail that can take you into Philadelphia. And there are these very old wealthy suburbs, you know, places like Bryn Mawr and, and the like in western Philly. And back then, so for much of the 20th century, if you'd said the main line, that was like saying the Hamptons today. Okay. Like if I say the Hamptons, what, what do you think of Jay? I say, oh, the Hamptons, people who go to the Hamptons. Uh, rich elitists. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, it's a shorthand. It's a, it's a place, it's a literal, you know, part of Long Island or whatever it is. Um, but it's, uh, it's a place that's a shorthand for uh, wealth and uh, cosmopolitan elites and the like. And uh, that was what Mainline was in the 1950s and early 60s. Oh, like, oh, the Mainline, those suburbs. And the thing is, is that, again, there's a number of seminaries out there, major, some of the biggest, wealthiest churches in the country. Um, uh, uh, there were a number of very influential uh, laymen, wealthy laymen, like uh, how, um, uh Pew, J. Howard Pew, Pew Charitable Trusts. Mm -hmm. He's, among other things, he was more conservative, but he attended the mainline church. Uh, he, um, he's the one who, you know, financed the, the creation of Christianity today, among other things. Ah. Um, so these, these mainline suburbs of Philadelphia had a lot of very wealthy, very influential religion, religious institutions and, and people. And so the same, it, it became then the shorthand for, oh, the the wealthy, influential, respectable Protestant churches who are also more liberal, et cetera, uh, in general, that's mainline churches, like those prominent, influential, wealthy mainline churches along the mainline railroad in Western Philly. So that, that's where the term comes from, which actually surprised me. I'm, I'm the first person to really track that down. Um, but that's, that's where the term mainline comes from, which is interesting because it's kind of more recent than I would have expected. I, I don't know where. I, I, I've used it my whole life right. as a shorthand for you know, non-evangelical denominations um, or for the older denominations, whatever you want to call them. But uh, yeah, it dates about to about 1960 as a religious term. Well, thank you. Um, obviously, a large section if not 90% of it, is devoted to media and how it interacts with uh, the conservative movement of the 1950s. And you write that the religious right felt they could not trust the broadcast news networks to tell the truth. They believed they could trust right-wing broadcasters to tell the real story about what was happening in America to give flesh to their previously inchoate concerns. Um, obviously, the term that jumped to mind was fake news, but what, what does this say about, about trust in general? Like, what, what led them to distrust the one and trust the other, if you don't, if you don't mind? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the way I'll contextualize this is that the 1960s and into the 70s was a crisis of institutional trust in America, uh, period. So across a number of axes, you have people who were raised and inculcated to trust in certain respectable institutions had that, that faith, that trust, shaken. So that's true whether we're talking about, you know, formal kind of high politics like the Pentagon Papers. You know, the Pentagon has been lying to us about the Vietnam War. They know it was lost years ago, and yet we've been, you know, sending our, our boys to die over there. And so that shook trust in kind of the military and government. Uh, Nixon, Watergate, trust in the office of the presidency, of the, the executive. Um, trust, I mean, so it also breaks down in terms of trust in religious institutions. It, uh, there were a lot of people, if you read the works of various kind of radical authors of the 60s who said, look, you can't, you know, we have all these crises of, of segregation and uh, poverty and the traditional institutions don't have, the traditional churches don't have anything to say to us about that. So can you really trust the church as an institution? And so this led to a variety of, you know, kind of new, new religious movements. Everybody from the, you know, like Jesus Freaks, Calvary Chapel, uh, I mean, to stuff that isn't, isn't even kind of in the evangelical orbit. So it's a time of great institutional upheaval, a crisis of confidence, a crisis of trust. And this also applies to the media. Um, again, you have this, this new kind of ideological movement, the uh, fusionist conservatism. Uh, there's millions of Americans who are now starting to think of themselves as conservatives. And they're very much aware, and they're being told by a set of you know, broadcasters and um, publications that have just been kind of founded in this era. National Review was founded in the 1950s as a, the kind of conservative uh, periodical record. Um, a number of um, most of these broadcasters I discuss are founded in the 1950s as well. And what, what people perceive is this kind of vacuum that all the major media institutions, whether that's uh, the network television and radio shows to the major newspapers, aren't reflecting uh, a conservative point of view at any point. There's kind of a deference in the media to, um, to the federal government and to the White House. In fact, we, we do know this is, it's not an inaccurate observation. It was their perception, but it was also rooted in reality, which is that, to give just one illustration, uh, the media showed a great amount of deference for all of uh, John F. Kennedy's, um, you know, personal peccadilloes. I mean, his fact that he was, I mean, in, in this era, he would be guilty of sexual assault a, a dozen times over, right. um, using his office to, you know, to, uh, uh, well, you know, to have affairs at a minimum, sometimes, you know, uh, assault uh, uh, secretaries who worked for his office. Um, lots of, yeah, he, 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 he makes Bill Clinton look like a, uh, a Puritan by, <laughs> by comparison. Um, and this was open knowledge in, in DC journalism. Yeah, everybody knew this, but they didn't talk about it. Uh, the media wouldn't talk about, uh, there was a kind of a self-embargo that um, they, should own, they should cover the administration how it wants to be covered and, and deal with matters of policy, not personal matters. Uh, you know, uh, famously, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, the, the media didn't typically cover the fact that he had polio and that he was mm -hmm. mostly wheelchair bound, right? Like right. that was kept from the public. Um, people, it, it, those are just two relatively small examples, but there was a, uh, people started to suspect that the media was being overly deferential to other, other, you know, to, to politicians, to the political class, um, and weren't accurately reflecting uh, what was going on. And so there was demand for some kind of alternative, and that's where you get the space for a new kind of wave of right-wing publishers and broadcasters, especially radio broadcasters like the folks I talk about in the book. Yeah, um, along, with, along with trust, we, I also saw some themes of a desire for the conservative movement to find acceptance. Uh, you wrote mm -hmm. about... Uh, Barry Goldwater writing writing his book Goldwater or, or or someone I forget maybe it wasn't Goldwater but it was uh the book was Goldwater Extremist of the Right and the publisher or the author had bought up multiple hundreds or thousands of copies to move it up the publication lists make it look more popular than it was 
and you know in recent recent months i believe donald trump jr did the same with his book triggered (laughs) and i'm just wondering is there is there do you see a need of american conservative christians to find greater acceptance than perhaps they have well it's it's one of those things that is a um the, the, the thirst for respectability is this um, fascinating, dangerous thing. It, it's not that it's without merit. I mean, I, w- we are told in Scripture to, you know, we're, we're supposed to pursue certain biblical ends. We're supposed to pursue justice. We're also supposed to live, you know, at peace with all men in as much as is possible. Right. Um, and I think part of that, there comes, I mean, if you, if you follow those, those verses to the letter— it turns you into a respectable citizen, someone who, uh, you know, we, we pay taxes to whom taxes are due, as it says in Romans. And we, 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 we're tax-paying citizens who take care of our homes, care for our neighborhoods. Um, it creates a certain kind of responsibility and respectability uh, uh, in theory. At the same time, this can be a, a, a double-edged sword, which is that the, pers- the desire for respectability, and, and even worse, I think, that can easily turn into just as a pure naked desire for influence. Okay. Um, which is a bit of a different matter. I mean, respectability is a thing that you, you, you are, you are, you are granted as a result of your conduct. Uh, influence is a thing you can grab, right? You don't need someone else for influence. You can assert influence. Um, so, and you can kind of see that showing up, uh, in contemporary politics today, which is, um, Conservatives who are, are very worried that um, without inf- that that the only there's a there's a thin line there's the only thing that holds back a kind of Christian hating majority from removing religious liberties from re- from you know a period of persecution repression and and anti-Christian hatred the only thing that's holding back those kind of hordes of opposition are is Christian political influence. And so that, that's where you get a willingness to vote for very unsavory, uh, uh, you know, unethical candidates because, well, at least they're our unsavory, unethical candidates. And as, you know, Robert Jeffress famously said in the 2016 election, I'm not voting. I don't want, I don't, I'm not electing Jesus. Right. I'm electing a president. I want the toughest, um, I want the toughest guy I can find to be in my side of the corner, you know, in, in my, my corner of the ring. Um, that's an attitude that comes out of a desire for power and influence and a certain kind of uh, fear, a persecution complex, a fear. And, and I, you know, it's not to say that there aren't people who dislike Christians, but I, I tend to think as someone who's, you know, worked at a D.C. think tank um, in a place not known for its religiosity, libertarianism and the Cato Institute are not particularly religious places. In fact, there's more Buddhists in my building than there are Christians. <laughs> practicing oh, interesting. Christians. Um, it's even folks who don't share our priors most of them are are just they're just people they're they're people trying their hardest they will treat you with the respect you treat them yes there are people who are antagonistic foes but um the kind of uh uh, persecution complex is often a figment of the imagination um and uh yeah if you want respect treat others with respect is, is my general philosophy so where where do you think that the uh, that cognitive dissonance might come from, or where might it might it be rooted in in culture? We have that that difference, you know, as we saw in the last election of you know making excuses for why we we might support one candidate over another, or as you know, your book is leading up to it's leading up to Reagan and his Southern strategy, and we can go back in history and we can look at the. Um, the philosophical switches of the political parties, you know, between the 40s and the 60s, but um, those are often either ignored or derided by uh, a certain strain of conservative historian, and I'm using that 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 term historian very loosely. Uh, other listeners of the network will recall that I have nothing but scorn for David Barton and Dinesh D'Souza, <laughs> but um, you know, where does that cognitive dissonance come from that we'll look at the good or the supposed good and ignore the the nasty underpinnings yeah. uh i have a little story to share so i was yes i was do down tell. in dc uh involving dinesh d'souza i was down in dc at the uh, east street cinema one night after work you know watching a film and when i came out 
they had transformed the lobby in the interim of the two hours I was in the movie. And uh, apparently they were doing the East Coast premiere of Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, uh, Death of a Nation? Yes, Death of a Nation. Birth of a Nation. No, Death of a Nation. Anyways, the one where he compares Donald Trump to Abraham Lincoln. Oh, yes. Um, and so I come out and like the lobby's been transformed and there's you know Donald Trump Jr., there's the, the, whoever that Milwaukee sheriff, David Clark, uh, there's Jerry Falwell Jr., um, and there's Nesh D'Souza, all like being interviewed by reporters in, in, the, in the lobby. So um, uh, let me put it this way. Dinesh D'Souza is an abominable historian, uh, if we can call him that, uh, but he's definitely uh, have, has a lot more influence <laughs> than this historian. Right. But, but to, um, uh, to your question, I, I think it's, a, it's the kind of perverse, the, the natural perversity baked into politics. So politics is fundamentally, at the end of the day, a function of power. Whoever has the most power, power tends to win the political game. They get to control the polis. So the more stuff that you offload onto the political process or into kind of the, the sphere of politics, um, the more uh, this kind of natural inherent uh, 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 problem, the struggle, is going to manifest. And so as the state um, uh, as yeah, as the state has grown uh, steadily ever since, well, I don't know when you went started at. You could make an argument for this post for the Civil War or or uh, the administrative state of the 1910s and 20s or the New Deal. I don't know. Whatever you want to start at. as the state has grown, the what is controlled by uh, the political process and thus by the the logic of power has grown. And the the thing about the political process and the pursuit of power is that it has a certain binary logic. You are either, in politics, you either win or you lose. There's no gradation. You don't either, you know, there's, it it is a a winner or a loser kind of process. It's also a natural, that's why it's a natural fit for Donald Trump, who talks in the language of we're winning and we're not losers. Right, like that's that is baked into his mindset. Right. Even though he's not, uh, he has the mindset of a, of a political person, even if he wasn't a politician before becoming president. Um, and so that 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 idea is really insidious. It encourages thinking of and that the fact that you it's a zero sum game. You either win or you lose makes every contest a matter of like existential import. Seemingly, it it, you, it almost always isn't. So this election is always the election that if we lose, the other side wins, it's the end of America as we know it. And that happens every election, and America doesn't end as we know it, regardless of what actually happens. But that doesn't change people's logic, because the logic is not rooted in anything other than the demands of, a, of, of, of the political process and the pursuit of power. And so, I, I, you know, you saw that in 2016. It was the Flight 93 election, to quote the, uh, you know, um, influential essay. Um, uh, which is, you know, Flight 93, uh, are, it, that's the flight that the uh, 9-11 hijackers, right. uh, the passengers revolted and rushed the cockpit and forced it to the ground, which means that they're basically saying that either, either we rush the cockpit in a, in a, in a, even, a, even a failed attempt at bringing down the plane is better than letting it go ahead and crash into the White House and destroy America. But that kind of thinking surfaces, like seriously, you can go back, go back and look at election ads for any election. And that kind of rhetoric and logic is there. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's intellectually corrupting. Because again, most of the time, the people you disagree with are just people like you. You have differences of opinion. But at the end of the day, you can, you can, you can edify each other. You can strengthen each other's ideas. You can, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. If, I mean, like, it, it, that de-escalation um, is just simply discouraged uh, by our political process. I'm moving, not necessarily moving on, but moving in a slightly different direction, yet still still related to politics. I was interested to read of the myriad of ways that the conservatives, we might say, got out their message. And you spend several chapters describing various letter-writing can- campaigns and calls to vote with the dial in regards to you know the radio stations that, that they were listening to. And um, I really enjoyed learning about card parties. I'll leave that to our listeners, you know, to read the book and find out what a card party is. <laughs> but it put me in mind of, you know, the pepper pot sketches on Monty Python 
or a Vox Populi spot on some other program because mainly they were they had involved women and I was somewhat surprised because when I'm thinking of the 1950s and 1960s I'm thinking of you know stay at home home stay at home homemakers mm-hmm. I've had in in my circles it's you know women stay at home they follow the man but they seemed to be leading these efforts can you speak a little bit more to the role of gender in the conservative movement movement that you that you found yeah great observation yeah so um what's funny is that there's both a left and a right wing version of or or um imagination or, or mythology about what it was like in the mid-20th century. The right-wing version is kind of what, what, you know, what you've described, right. that we were, we were raised to expect, this idea of the, the, the stay-at-home mom, the homemaker. This was you know, the way it was treated in our circles growing up. It was anything other than that ideal was suboptimal. Like right. Maybe a wife has to work outside the home, but her top desire is to, as quickly as possible, let, let the man be the breadwinner and stay at home and, and raise the family. Uh, kind of Republican Republican motherhood, to use the historical term. Yeah. Um, but the uh, there's a left wing version of this too. This depiction, I mean, it's a different. It, it's different in as much as the right wing version is nostalgic for this imagined past, which was never actually as true as it was as we pretend it was. Um, but it's it's it thinks of that with a you know with a golden lens, right? With the golden tint. Mm-hmm. It was a good thing. The left-wing version is that this was a bad thing, but it was still a thing. So Betty Friedan in her famous book, The Feminine Mystique, talked about the problem which has no name, talks about housewives who are basically having to self-medicate their way through the boredom and ennui of suburban living, crying into their pillow at night, asking themselves, is this it? Is this all there is? And um, the... Uh, uh, so, but there you have the same idea, this idea that like women were just stay at home, not allowed to be involved outside the home, not involved in politics, not involved in substantive matters, for, coming from both left and right. And it simply was not as true as either uh, portrays it as. So both on, both, there's both left-wing and right-wing expressions of this. There's this, uh, it's a, his, um, a group of historians have, have, labeled this housewife populism and so yes you had stay-at-home mothers especially if you're middle class I mean, if you're working class women women worked outside the home all the time but if you're uh, you know kind of middle class uh, stay-at-home mothers they actually got very involved in politics very involved in you know door-to-door campaigns and book clubs and in fact in, in many ways, much more so than their husbands, because their husbands are having to work. They don't have the time right. to organize book clubs and knock on doors for candidates, etc. And so you, you uh, for both left-wing and right-wing causes, we see these housewives who now, because of labor-saving devices, uh, you know, being developed for consumer audiences after the war, uh, dishwashers and, and, and the like, they have more free time than they would have in the previous generation, and they use that time to advocate for candidates and causes. Um, you know, in the book, I tell the story of these of the the great Polish ham boycott. But it was uh, you know conservative housewives in suburban neighborhoods who were unhappy with John F. Kennedy's trade policies with Eastern Europe. Ironically, Kennedy was using powers given to him by Congress to allow the the president to unilaterally lower tariffs. Uh, those same powers were re- have been used recently by Trump to raise tariffs, which was the opposite of the intended purpose. But uh, anyways, he was using those same powers. Um, and uh, these conservative housewives didn't like that. They, In a sense, they, this housewife populism saw the country, you know, just as they were in charge of the domestic sphere, their own homes, they were also housewives should look out for the national home, for the country. And they didn't like the import of goods from behind the Iron Curtain you know, Polish hams and Yugoslavian wicker baskets made by, as they would have put it, slave-produced goods from from Eastern Europe. Mm. And so they would organize these these direct action tactics. They would take little cards, little like, you know, I don't know, one-by-two-inch cards printed with slogans like, always buy your communist products at Supergiant. And they would go to the grocery store or to the, you know, department store, and they would litter the store with, you know, dozens of them would descend in the store and leave thousands of these cards, you know, in the, in the coat, in the, in the pocket of every suit coat on display in the Sears or, you know, in the slip them into the packaging of the toothpaste tubes. Um, and they knew that, you know, because they're housewives, that conveyed a certain amount of respectability and power. Okay. Because you know, the, the, the shop owners... 
uh, if they call the police on these people who are, you know, driving, I mean, if they'd have to, you know, have employees stay late trying to find all the cards, um, or else it's embarrassing to have all these cards saying you're, you know, your store is selling goods from, from, you know, communist dominated countries. So it was a real pain, but if you tried to stop them, like call the cops, you're going to get headlines that store, you know, store manager calls cops on dentist's wife, you know, like they're, so that's, that's the expression of this housewife populism in the conservative sense. There also were left-wing boycotts uh, in, on behalf of like uh, desegregation and, and other causes happening at the same time. So yeah, you're, that's what's funny about this period is that there's this depiction of the perfect American dream nuclear family of the 1950s and um, it's almost completely wrong. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of the of the grassroots movement, there was one sentence that I, I read several times, and I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Uh, we had been discussing before before recording that, depending on who reads the book, you know, there's something in it to offend everyone. I guess we might say. Um, but there was one particular sentence you wrote, a successful movement gives participants a sense of hope that their small local actions can make a large national difference. And my first response was, isn't this the very nature of Christianity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, religious movements are, are social movements too. Um, we, we actually, the, the term by religion scholars is, for, we, we don't talk about cults in among religious religion scholars it's new religious movement um and it's just a different it's just a variant it's a religious variant of a social movement and social movements uh there's a whole body of of work i won't go into here about called social movement theory about like where do these things come from like how do you convince you know you've got a status quo and the status quo has powerful uh has a has a kind of powerful impulses that that prevail. Some of that's just inertia. It's hard for us to imagine that the world could be different. Um, that's the first step. You have to get people to imagine that something might change. Like, like in a world dominated by Jim Crow era segregation and white supremacy, how do you get folks to imagine, first of all, that the world could be different? They're used to the way it is, right? How, how do you get them to change their... So social movements do that work, and social movements have to be uh, organized, they have to have, and, and there's a, a whole literature on what is sufficient, what's necessary, what's sufficient for the rise of a social movement. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Part of that too, so part of it's having an imagination, a big vision. Um, the t one term that you can use for that is a cosmogram, you know, cosmos, world, or universe, gram, message. Like, what is this, like, world-encompassing vision, this big picture that sparks people's imagination, fires them up? But that by itself is not enough. You need organization work. You need some means of connecting people together. Uh, some of that is the kind of uh, literary network of the... It, so for Christians, this was the literary network of the early church period. You had these like people connected by passing letters from the Apostle Paul, from the Gospels authors, to each other. It was like literally they were taking advantage of the, the kind of uh, trade, the safe... Reliant, re reliable, efficient trade and kind of postal network, if you will, of the Roman Empire to send, it was a Republic of Letters kind of thing, though that's a much later term, Republic of Letters. In the 1950s for conservatism, it was, I argue, radio in the book that you had this network of radio broadcasters. So I'm, I'm, I am a housewife in St. Augustine, Florida. I tell the story of one such housewife, Esther Lita DeCapo, in the book. And, uh, I don't know anybody necessarily in my neighborhood who's also a conservative, but I listen to, to conservative radio every day mm -hmm. and I feel connected. I donate my little, you know, $5 a month. I uh, read everything that's sent to me by my favorite broadcasters. Uh, and when they encourage me to do something like hold a card party or contact my store and protest the goods, I do it. And because I, I'm connected to this network, well, that, that, that store chain has probably received 100 such complaints that week, and they respond to me. And so, like, that gives you a powerful sense of, like, even in my own little small way, even though I don't necessarily know anyone right around me who's conservative, I feel engaged in a, in a movement with, like, national uh, implications for the entire nation. In this regard, this is what Christianity is like, too. Like, we, you know, you're told, you know, you're encouraged to go 
proselytize, to go evangelize, uh, witness to, to the lost. And um, your own contribution might feel small, but when you do have a good conversation or where, where someone does agree to go with you to church or, or the like, um, as you hear stories of other people's successes, as you hear missionary stories from across the globe, that sense of feeling of connection uh, really makes you feel part of a movement that encourages people to go and be active themselves. And so radio provides that key kind of crucial link. Um, Christians have churches, they have other uh, kind of uh, networks that provide that role, but um, conservatives in the mid-20th century had radio, among other means. So might you say that, you know, with radio forming up a network of otherwise disconnected people, might that even be considered a, a forerunner of like the podcast or Patreon today? Yeah, that's a great point. And, and here's the interesting, the, the interesting um, corollary. Uh, so radio in the 50s and 60s was a niche. It was a niche media form. So, you know, oh, really? the hot thing at, yeah, the hot thing at the time was television. So by the 50s, the FCC is approving television permits, and the, the big networks, you know, that had dominated the radio previously, they are putting all their money into buying television stations and developing television programming. That's, that's, that's what, you know, reaches the most number of people with the most, in the most effective way. That's where all the advertising revenue is flowing, uh, which frees up radio now to be in you know, independent station ownership. So like rather than the network controlling, you know, thousands of radio stations or hundreds of radio stations, now you'll have like little independent radio stations owned by one person. They just own one station or two stations. Maybe they're a local businessman who wants to, you know, promote his lumber yard or whatever. Um, and they don't have as much money as the networks. They're desperate for cash and they're willing to air controversial stuff that the networks would have avoided, including in this case, conservative voices who never would have gotten on the radio, on the airwaves during the network-dominated period. So it's precisely because radio has become more niche, less, you know, gone are the days when the whole family gathers around the radio to listen to FDR do a fireside chat or to listen to The Lone Ranger or, you know, all the, the, the serial radio dramas of the 1930s, 20s, 30s. Little Orphan um, Annie. <laughs> yeah, Little Orphan Annie. Exactly, exactly. The whole, there's a whole... Well, now the family gathers around the television. Uh, it's less of a communal thing now, too. It's not the family gathered around the radio. It's people are listening to the radio. It's the housewife while she's doing household chores listening to radio or the you know, person on their commute to work in their car listening to the radio. Uh, it's a very different experience, and it's much more niche than it was previously. But it's that very niche nature that allows uh, radical groups like these conservatives to get a foothold. Um, the same th thing is true of podcasting. So in a sense, with radio, because it becomes more niche, the barriers to entry fall. becomes a lot cheaper to get on the airwaves. And so even smaller groups, you don't have to have like big, giant mainstream groups to get access. Now little niche groups can have access. Same thing with podcasting. It lowers the barrier of entry. Anyone can have a podcast. You and I have podcasts. I mean, you know, right. like, we would not have been able to attract audiences of the hundreds or the thousands or even more if you're one of the big boys, you know, the Pod Save America types or, you know, uh, Chapo Trap House or whoever, right? Now you can build an entire career uh, off of podcasting in a way that would have been unthinkable uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And uh, so th in that regard, it's pretty similar. Barriers to entry are lower, and it's opened the door for a lot more radical content. I mean, the, uh, compare the kind of the diversity, the ideological diversity um, that you have if you open your, you know, top iTunes podcast list compared to the top television shows, right? Much more diverse, everything from you know, socialists to libertarians to Christian humanists to you name it, there's a podcast for it. There's a hundred podcasts for it at this point, right? Right. Well, since we've mentioned the FCC, we've we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the the conservative movement in the in the fifties and sixties, but we haven't really discussed the central theme of the book, which is the the conflict between the FCC and the uh, the conservative radio broadcasters, mm -hmm. and I, in my, uh, my the review that I wrote for for Goodreads, I called it a theodicical uberos. You know, each side, good, e good line. Each yeah. <laughs> each side fears the other, but in their reactions, they create they create the enemy that they fear. Might you know is that a uh, 
you're not, sorry, my, yeah. my mind, is, is that a good way of looking at it? Yeah, that's a, it's a great term. I wish I'd come up with that one. Uh, Theodiscal the, the Uruburos, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The serpent at the end of the world devouring its own tail. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I uh, the way I put it is that, again, so we're in the 1960s. There's this period of um, declining trust in institutions. And everyone's really kind of, a, every, everyone's afraid of a revolution of some kind. Like, there's a lot of paranoia in the 1960s as well. And so you're right, the first, the first kind of part of my book is about the kind of constructive role, if you will, of the radio rights, of conservative radio, and building a movement and activating conservative grassroots uh, uh, action around the country. Um, the second part, though, is about how the uh, Kennedy administration and the Democratic National Committee and kind of allied interest groups saw that as a threat and took uh, extreme and illicit, I mean, illegal measures to shut it down using executive power, uh, in this case, the IRS and the FCC. Um, uh, but, it, but again, it's grounded in that belief that both sides thought that the other was, if, if, if unchecked, was going to bring about the end of America. And so for uh, the Kennedy administration in the early 60s, they were convinced, and it might seem strange to us today because we know how things turned out. You know, uh, we know that Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, it might, it's not going to surprise, surprise you to know, but Kennedy didn't know he was going to be assassinated, right? <laughs> right. Um, uh, but everyone at, in the early 60s, they were convinced that, um, uh, that there was going to be, uh, it was almost like, almost a, it's reminiscent of the deep state conspiracy theories of the moment. Mm -hmm. This idea that there's you know, some secret cabal of government employees who are seeking to undermine the Trump administration. Though in this case, it was the Kennedy administration was worried that some cabal of conservative military people and even broadcasters would work together to overthrow, to you know, sponsor a military coup. Um, some of this was, uh, they were worried about, you know, the 1950s, John MacArthur uh, was a very influential right-wing general coming out of the Korean War who f fought with uh, Truman, and um, so it's, some of that's a legacy of that, but there was a number of them, whether it's Curtis LeMay, who ran as, as vice president with George Wallace in 68, he was an Air Force general, or in the book I discussed the story of Edwin Walker, who was a cashiered army general, um, who toured the country with broadcaster Billy James Hargis. In, uh, it, he was basically mounting an attempt at an independent presidential bid in, for 64, though it didn't end up going anywhere. In fact, one of the odd things is that Edwin Walker, this you know, former army general who was uh, fired for, um, he gave his troops training manuals that included materials from Billy James Hargis that accused the Kennedy administration and the National Council of Churches of being infiltrated by communists, which was a common conservative kind of conspiracy theory of the time. Not entirely conspiracy theory, but, you know, well, well, it was a conspiracy theory. Just sometimes it was accurate. <laughs> but some, a lot of times it wasn't. Anyways, in this case it wasn't. And, um, uh, but he, uh, uh, Oswald, um, before uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy, uh, in uh, later in 1963, he actually first took a shot at um, Edwin Walker, uh, and he missed him. But because the bullet ricocheted off the window and wounded Walker in the arm in his kitchen, and when he came home, his wife said, "Why did you do that?" And he said, "Well, if you'd had a chance to kill Hitler before he rose to power, you know, shouldn't you have? Wouldn't you have done so?" And what? The funny thing is that well, Oswald was tapping into this fear that some right-wing military general, and uh, bear in mind, too, that Goldwater was a uh, reserve, I think Air Force Reserve, as I recall. He was also a general. Uh, but there was this idea that a right-wing general would overthrow the American democracy because of their paranoia about communism. This gets expressed in a number of popular movies mm -hmm. at the time. Yep. Uh, you know, Seven Days in May, Dr. Strangelove. Yep. Um, That's the one that came was, to mind for me. Exactly. You know, there, the general, who is Curtis LeMay, I mean, it's clear riff on Curtis LeMay, is obsessed with his, you know, precious bodily fluids and being stolen and fluoridation and communists, you know, brainwashing. Um, uh, seven Days in May, actually, uh, John F. Kennedy gave them approval to film at the White House uh, f for that movie uh, because he thought it was timely 
You know, so everyone, again, the funny thing is that there was no incipient right-wing military coup. But if you will, the left at the time, if you will, was certain that there was a right-wing conspiracy out there to overthrow the government. So much so that when Kennedy was assassinated, the initial theories about who was responsible, everyone assumed it was a conservative who had killed Kennedy, not Lee Harvey Oswald, who was a communist, right? Right. Um, they just assumed because, like, oh, they finally did it. They pulled the trigger. Now that, you know. Um, so th that's the sense in which um, Kennedy and his administration justified the illegal use of executive power to suppress right-wing radio in what is the most successful episode of censorship of the last half century in America. Um, he justified that, and his administration justified that, because, well, we're up against an existential threat. Remember, this is the logic mm -hmm. of politics, the logic of power. Uh, you know, America will will go away. It's the end of America if the other side gets power. So that justifies, you know, uh, ends justify the means. And, um, you know, there's, there's right-wing versions of that. You can see that kind of thinking in the Trump administration. There's left-wing expressions of that, as you could see in the Kennedy's, uh, Kennedy administration's response to the radio right. Yeah, um, you mentioned several times, you know, the idea of a conspiracy, and most of this would have remained we might say, in conspiracy land had it not been for the fact that they wrote down everything. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's, it's funny because, you know, uh, this is pre-Watergate. Um, so folks aren't as careful about keeping records as they would be after, you know, Nixon got caught uh, on, you know, Oval Office tapes discussing the, you know, the cover-up. Um, Kennedy was actually the first president to record substantial conversations in the White House. He had a tape recorder in there. And in fact, he, there's a it's a it's a just a, a short section, but he actually discusses this kind of conspiracy to silence the radio right using executive power um, on tape. Uh, it's you only know it if you have the kind of context, but it's a it's a pretty clear reference once you understand what he's talking about. So yeah, I I have you know I found him on on tape discussing the plan um, and what he actually proposed doing and did was, uh, you know, there, there are, uh, the president nominates the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, which is who regulates licenses for radio stations at the time, um, and well, and today. Uh, he also nominates the, you know, he appoints the head of the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, uh, who in this case was a former law school professor of Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General. And uh, so Kennedy leaned on both of them, who were perfectly willing to be leaned on. They were, you know, faithful, loyal party men. And uh, so he encouraged the IRS to start a series of targeted audits of right-wing radio stations, right-wing, I mean, I should say right-wing broadcasters, to try to remove their tax-exempt status. That succeeded in a couple of cases. Um, he also, and even when it didn't succeed, you know, doing a multi-year detailed audit during which your donations are not necessarily tax exempt uh, is a great way of drying up the supply of funds. And, on, and at the same time, he also encourages the chairman of the FCC, a fellow named E. William Henry, to uh, ramp up enforcement of the Fairness Doctrine. And the Fairness Doctrine was a rule, I won't get into the weeds here, but it was a rule uh, meant to, uh, I mean, it, the ostensible goal is something that, like, who could disagree with? And this is how all legislation is, right? We call our legislation stuff like Stop Online Sex Trafficking Act. Right. Uh, right, like, in, well, if you vote against it, are you for online sex trafficking? I mean, right, like, uh, so who's can be against fairness? I mean, are you for fairness, the fairness doctrine? So the, the, what was ostensibly supposed to do was if you, uh, radio stations had an obligation to discuss what was called controversial issues of public importance, you know, like hot button stuff. Uh, should we be in Vietnam or not? Should we pass Medicaid or Medicare, et cetera? Hot button issues at the time. But when they discussed those issues, they were supposed to do so in a fair way by giving hearing to both major sides. Um, so if you had someone for the Vietnam War, you should have someone against the, the Vietnam War, et cetera. Now, in theory, this sounds like a, a, a fine idea in, in, in abstract, like who can, again, who can be against fairness? Shouldn't both sides get a hearing? But in practice, the fairness doctrine was only ever used as a tool to advance 
the Kennedy administration and the Democratic National Committee's partisan interests. Um, it was not equitably applied. It was only used to um, force conservative stations to air more pro-administration content and never used to force pro-administration, you know, or more liberal stations to air conservative content. So it became a very, whatever its original intent, it became a very convenient tool to suppress the political opposition. Right, and you talk about this a little bit toward the very, the very end of your book. Um, I was surprised how long the fairness doctrine actually lasted. I, mm. I was not aware that it lasted, what was it, till the 80s? Yeah, so it, it's... Um, it's really it's it's technically on the books by 1959. It's not really enforced until this episode I talk about in the mid 60s, like 63 till say the end of the 70s. Um, the Carter administration unofficially stops enforcing it, so it's got about a 15 year okay. run there, give or take. And then uh, the Reagan administration officially stops enforcing it. But it's technically on the books until 2011. During the Obama administration, they officially took it off the books, finally. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was around for a while. But the problem is it had this real chilling effect. So if you're, if you're a radio station owner, um, and there's some um, additional rules passed in support of the Fairness Doctrine, uh, which require you, so if you aired you know, Billy James Hargis uh, criticizing the Kennedy administration's Cuba policy you know, after the Bay of Pigs, or criticizing, in one case, let me give you another case. Uh, uh, there was a, um, um, another broadcaster who attacked uh, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, for the Gulf of Tonkin uh, resolution. You know, the, the, this is, it's, it, it was um, essentially a, a fictitious attack on American boats off the coast of Vietnam that was used as a pretext to put more boots on the ground, combat troops on the ground in Vietnam, and escalate. It really led to the kind of high Vietnam War period. It was all based on a, on a fictitious attack, and, and Johnson knew that. His critics accused him of knowing that. I mean, they didn't have any evidence, but they had criticized you know, that we shouldn't be escalating in Vietnam because this was a fake attack. Well, the Johnson administration, or their allies in the Democratic National Committee, were able to say, well, the Fairness Doctrine says if you attack our Vietnam War policy on the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, we have to be allowed to get response time. But, and this was because of a, an additional rule, uh, if we say we can't pay for the response time, you have to give us the response time anyways. So if you're a radio station host, every time a conservative broadcaster attacks or criticizes an administration figure or policy, you're on the, you're on the books for double that. You're not getting money for the response time. So it just doesn't pay. And so hundreds of radio stations around the country start dropping conservative programmers altogether. It has a chilling effect on political speech, which was the entire point. And there's these internal memoranda between uh, Democratic operatives where they're very open that that was their intent. That was the purpose of their use of the Fairness Doctrine. And uh, so radio gets kind of depoliticized in the late 60s and 70s. And it's not until the Fairness Doctrine is, is removed, or at least not enforced, that you get the, re the return of overtly political radio. The rise of talk radio is, a, is in large part a function of the end of the Fairness Doctrine. You know, your Rush Limbaugh's and, and the like. Right. Um, since you brought them up and thinking of the political candidates that such men support, um, I believe that the phrase was used perhaps in the movie Seven Days in May. You, you mentioned it a couple of times. The, the sentence is, every now and then a man on a white horse rides by and we appoint him to be our own personal god. And mm. I thought a little bit of, at least in film, of the way that uh, Kennedy is portrayed, um, certain conservative circles, the way that Trump is portrayed today, maybe mm -hmm. even like a you know Harvey Dent in Batman. But what is it about... American American conservatives that might make us more or make them more um, susceptible to, for lack of a better phrase, to embrace idolatry. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That and one thing I'll point out is that it's it's a bipartisan. It's a it's a kind of a it's a kind of a human phenomenon. Though you can make an argument that we are uniquely susceptible in the U.S. We so a man on horseback, um, you know, riding in to save the day. I mean, if you just tweak that a little bit, the you know the the lone gunslinger riding into town to to save the day, or the you know the lone 
honest politician, Mr. Smith rides into Washington and cleans house. You know, it's, it's a very old concept. But the actual phrase, man on the horseback, I, I forget the name of the original use. Uh, there's an anarchist in the, as I recall, during the Spanish-American War, he was an anti-war um, figure who used the phrase to refer to Teddy Roosevelt derisively, that he was like a man on horseback. And this is actually a reference to an Aesop fable, The Hunter and the Hare. Anyways, don't get down in the weeds here. But um, <laughs> it's, So it's an old phrase that predates all these uses. But it's a way of saying you're looking for, a, in ancient times, a man on horseback. I mean, horses are are that's not what you use for normal farm work in ancient times. Right. Ho- ho- only wealthy, only a re- you know their version of the nobles own horses, and they're more useful for war than they are for farming. I mean, back in ancient times, you used oxes, or you know, oxen, I should say, oxes. <laughs> uh, use oxen or mules, donkeys. You know, those are those are farm animals. Horses are are you know for war. So the idea of a man on horseback is the warrior comes in and restores order. And the problem is, is that the warrior has power, right? Like it's, it's a call for a dictator, for an authoritarian, for someone who's doesn't, is, doesn't abide by convention, who cuts through all the mess and the, the noise and the political correctness and comes in and saves the day from a corrupt and decadent society. And uh, whether that's Teddy Roosevelt or as conservatives like to say, um, you know, they, well, or as, you know, the, I should say the Kennedy administration, like, the, you know, they were worried about a right-wing man on horseback. Kennedy gave this famous speech where he talked about the man on horseback right. where he was thinking of Edwin Walker and, and Curtis LeMay, perhaps. Um, or it's conservatives today looking for Donald Trump as a, as a kind of man on horseback, not afraid to dole out pain and punishment to enemies domestic and abroad, whether they be, you know, I don't know, um, Democrats here or... Iranian generals over there, you know, right. um, that is kind of a natural human temptation, and it's a natural invitation to authoritarianism. Because the whole point of the figure is that he breaks the stasis; he doesn't respect the rules or the laws. He just has raw, naked power and might and force, and he's willing to use violence. And like that—that that is. Uh, we're, that's that's. I mean, so that expression is something of a constant in modern American history. Thank you for explaining that. Uh, looking at the time, we're in, we're either approaching or just past the hour mark, and we, you know, we do try to keep these interviews short. Your time is valuable, and we do thank you for being with us. But in the spirit of hospitality, we would like to offer our guests the last word. So, is there anything that you would you would want to leave us with with today? Sure. I was thinking about this. Like, what's if there's one thing, one like principle, I can I can encourage uh, your listeners to think about. Um, it's this. So rather than the nitty gritty of all these, I mean, there's lots of cool stories in the book. Do go check the book out. I mean, obviously, it's in my interest to say that, but it's full of fun, fascinating little stories, uh, like the attempted assassination of Edwin Walker and the the boycott card parties and all that kind of thing. But if there's a theme that runs throughout that, it, that is, I think, a, a broader principle that applies not just to works of history, but to politics and society and religion, it's that we are very easily entranced by the least significant factors, um, the least significant influences. Uh, we ascribe outsized importance to the wrong things. And what I mean by that is that when it comes to explaining why something happens, we're always, it's, it's our natural inclination to look at the surface level explanations and to ignore the role of deeper, more fundamental structural causes. Uh, in history, this shows up in a variety of ways. So in my book, my basic argument is that people, when they tell the story of the rise of the right, they look at like the personalities. It was because of Goldwater that the new style right arose or because of the National Review and William F. Buckley, because he's a big intellectual that people have heard of. So it's personalities, publications, politicians. It's all retail politics, if you will. Um, whereas the reality, I argue, is that it's a structural change. It's, a, it's no one intended that the change of, of ra- radio from network domination to independent control would have all these unforeseen cultural and political ramifications that would echo echo for the next, you know, next several decades. No one thought that. It was the structure, though, that changed that led to these more 
surface level or retail um, uh, movements. Um, you can do the same kind of thing with, um, uh, take, take the 2016 election. Uh, did, you know, people immediately after Trump beat Hillary in the surprise election, people were looking for an explanation for why. And there were lots of different theories. You know, was it because of some recrudescence of racism in the American politic? Was it because of the economically dispossessed in areas that have been, I don't know, harmed by NAFTA or something? People were looking for a reason for his victory. But the real reason, if you actually, you know, speak to political scientists, is is much more structural and fundamental. It's that 2016, if you, all the prediction models created by political scientists and economists to predict elections, the most accurate ones actually favored Donald Trump in 2016. Why? Because they look at two things typically, the performance of the economy, and the economy was recovering at the time. So people, um, or the economy was actually not yet in full recovery at the time, pardon me. So people want to switch parties when the economy is not doing well and stick with a party when the economy is doing well. And we just had a two-term president from the other party and people like to switch horses uh, after two terms of, of you know, one party control of the White House. So it was a Republican election to lose just based on fundamentals. It didn't matter who the Republican nominee was, the underlying political and economic structures favored whoever the Republican nominee was. That's a really unsexy reason for why 2016 turned out the way it is. We all prefer these more epiphenomenal, that's actually a Marxist term, these like surface level explanations, um, but it was actually much more structural. So this is generally true. I mean, even in our personal stories that we tell about why things happen in our lives, we like, we privilege these, these kind of surface level explanations. It's because I made this decision or that decision. It's because I met this person or that person. Um, whereas we don't think of like these broader structures that influence, even if we're not, we're not, might not even always be conscious of them, but the way in which our, what, what we notice about our lives, our decisions, all of that is all informed by these deeper structural patterns and institutions uh, that we might not even be aware of. And uh, so that, that's the takeaway I would have, is that like train yourself to look for the deeper, more structural explanations for the social trends around you, for the history of what happened, and for how your, uh, what happens in your own life. Well, thank you, Paul, for those final thoughts. Listeners, I'd like to remind you that our guest today has been Dr. Paul Matsko, whose new book, The Radio Right, is out this April from Oxford University Press. It's currently available for pre-order, and then after its release, it will be available wherever fine books are sold. Um, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. For Christian Humanist Profiles, this is Jay Eldred, reminding you to go in grace, go in peace, and serve the Lord. <laughs>